Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and you're listening to Exploring Different Brains. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. Today, we're going to be talking with Michael Ellenbogen, who at the age of 49 was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. But what we're going to find out is that he was noticing signs earlier than that. Michael, welcome to Exploring Different Brains. Thank you for having me. All righty. So uh, this is going to be a great tale. It's going to be very instructive. And I want to learn from it myself because I think you and I are going to end up collaborating on some stuff because I'm seeing the early signs with me. Uh, Go ahead and uh, tell us your story. Introduce yourself to our audience here. Well, my name is Michael Ellenbogen. I was, I guess, diagnosed with Alzheimer's at age 49, but that was after struggling for almost 10 years trying to get a diagnosis. Uh, I was a high-level manager working for a bank, and uh, I, I realized early on that I was having difficulties remembering extension numbers, acronyms related to my field. Uh, I was even having trouble remembering my direct reports names at times. Uh, So I knew something was wrong. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, when you're young, uh, and at that time uh, I was, uh, I guess, in my uh, early 40s, all they kept telling me was that I was stressed, I was depressed, and I did have a very stressful job. But for me, it was not stressful. I actually enjoyed that kind of stress uh, in, in what I was doing. Uh, so it, it really took a lot of uh, working with doctors and uh, being very patient to finally get a diagnosis. It, it wasn't until almost eight to nine years later that I finally was able to get a diagnosis. So let me see if I got this straight. So now you're roughly around 39 years old. You start to notice different things. You start going to doctors. And what were some of the labels they were putting on you? Well, what I quickly realized is once one doctor puts a label in your chart that they think you're stressed, it doesn't matter anymore what any other doctor says, because the first thing they do is look at your records and they see what one doctor says. And immediately in their mind, they they go by what the conclusion of the other doctor did. They no longer want to make their own conclusion. Well, it brings up a very interesting principle, which is what I call the theory of mutual exclusivity. I tell uh, some of our interns who work here, I tell the kids at the Boys and Girls Club, don't buy society's big lie that things are mutually exclusive. And, you know, stress... Well, listen, on the book I wrote about Asperger's autism and neurodiversity, the first chapter is anxiety. And guess what? It rules all of us. So you don't have to have any diagnosis for that. We're all anxious. We're all under stress, okay? So the first thing we learn from this is is to open your mind that things don't occur in isolation. And if you want to use fancy terms, you can say comorbidities, but we don't need to think like that. So they're telling you you have stress, and you're bringing up the point, well taken, that once a doctor puts a diagnosis in your chart, it's there. And so you go around the Sunel, tell us, take us from there what happened. Well, what happened was uh, 
the first round of doctors uh, lasted about, I guess, about three years. And I was in my early 40s. And what happened was I ended up getting terminated from my job. Uh, and I went to another job and I realized I couldn't learn anymore. The job I went to, I had about 30 pages of notes. And I still relied on those notes four years later. And I mean, I was a very intelligent person. I mean, I never used to have a dayminder or anything like that. So for me, this was just not the norm. So I decided that I was going to start all over again because it was really becoming to a point that I was just overwhelmed every day. I was so stressed out just from trying to keep up with uh, doing the simple tasks. So I decided I was going to start all over again with all new doctors. I wasn't going to share with the doctors of my previous diagnosis. And when I did this, I went to psychologists, psychiatrists, all at the same time. And one of the psychiatrists came back and said, look, I don't see anything wrong with you, but have you thought of Alzheimer's? Because that's what it seems to me it could be. And he told this to my wife, who happens to be a medical uh, person also. So she did a little bit more research into it. And when my neurologist came back this time and said, well, we don't see anything wrong with the MRIs or anything, she suggested, well, how about if we do a PET scan? So it wasn't until the PET scan came back and that came back conclusive of Alzheimer's. And from that point on, once I had that label, everybody all of a sudden, it's like, oh yeah, it's some kind of form of dementia. And I ended up going to all kinds of doctors and they were all now going down the avenue that I had some type of dementia, most likely Alzheimer's. And I was very fortunate to be able to be into a study at NIH where they thought I might have had semantic dementia. And after all their testing there, they came back also conclusive of Alzheimer's. So ever since then, I've been lucky that I've been in medical trials and other things, and everybody just constantly says that it is Alzheimer's. Very interesting. Now, have you, we're talking now, what, how have you been mainstreaming this information? How have you been getting the word out um, on your experience? Well, I originally started by reaching out to the Alzheimer's Association, and I thought I could put my good skills to use there to try to advocate. And to be very honest with you, I was very disappointed early, early on. I, I belonged to a group that they had formed here locally. It was the ESAG group. And it was a bunch of other young people who were also living with some form of dementia. But what I realized early on was they really weren't trying to make awareness for people who were living with dementia. They were really trying to just make us feel good. <laughs> and personally, I'm a person that looks at my results. What am I getting accomplished? And there, there was one issue that I saw that was happening here locally at uh, – major university that they weren't treating people with dementia the proper way. And when I took it to the Alzheimer's Association, they didn't want to address the situation. They said, well, these people are giving us money, so we really don't want to go after them in any way. And that's when I realized that I had to step outside of that box and reinvent myself and to become an advocate for people living with dementia, because the people who I thought were supposed to be really supporting people with dementia weren't really doing it because, of course, they were getting money from these institutions. So 
with that, I started to try to create a LinkedIn network, which now today has 6,800 connections. And these are all people all over the world who hopefully will be able to help bring change to this. You're one of them, of course. <laughs> and I've been able to be very successful of being on radio and television all because of this. I actually wrote a book, uh, I guess, a couple of years ago. It's called From the Corner Office to Alzheimer's. And I really want to expand on that book. But unfortunately, my skills are no longer there, capable of doing it. In fact, my wife read what I wrote and she told me to give it up <laughs> because I couldn't. My writing was no longer good. Well, let's uh, tell our audience where they can get a hold of that book you already wrote. Well, that book's available on Amazon or other bookstores. Uh, they can order it. Again, it's called the, From the Corner Office to Alzheimer's. That's great. Okay, by Michael Ellenbogen. So we're going to make sure that we put that graphic up on this uh, video when it gets edited so people will know where to go for that. Um, yeah, and, and, and the reason I wrote that book, it was really to educate people about the difficulties that I had and the problems with the health system. And it, it was my hope that people would learn from that and hopefully they would change going forward for other people. And I also wanted people like myself to understand that, hey, if you run into a bad doctor, find another one, because that's the problem that I really ran into. And I, I have regrets that I didn't move on to another doctor much sooner. And, you know, I went to one of the big, biggest doctors here in the United States. And sadly to say, all because they're a big doctor doesn't mean they know it all. Well, and as an MD, I can say that I would hesitate to use the word bad doctor. Rather, I would put it like this. When it comes to neurodiversity, which is Alzheimer's is a neurodiversity, just as autism, Asperger's, PTSD, dyslexia, you name it, um, where we have to stop thinking that one size fits all. But it's not the doctor's fault that what? They don't get any training in it, okay? They get very little training. I'm very proud that I gave the first ever neurodiversity lectures to the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. It's not on their radar. I also gave um, a talk through Skype to the third year medical school class at Boston University where they're starting to get training in it. And it's not really big on the radar screen of the doctors and we have to get it big because the numbers are big. And the other thing I want to emphasize is that there are real tools that you can use to affect the practical course of everything and you are a great example of that as well. And of course, if you've met one person with Alzheimer's, you've met one person with Alzheimer's because they're not, uh, not going to be alike. Now, what other stuff have you done besides uh, the book, which the name of the book is From the Corner Office to Alzheimer's, right? Correct. Okay. Have you done anything else that our audience can, uh, can find about you? Well, I, I did share a, a document with you. I think it was like 50-some pages. It was a, a vision that I had created with a number of other people living with dementia uh, on what I think needs to happen in the United States uh, and, and actually the world. It's actually been shared with many world leaders already. Uh, uh, 
that's something I'm willing to share with anybody. If they reach out to me, I'm more than happy to share a free copy with them. Uh, I've written things into the congressional record. In fact, uh, I'm just getting ready to now put my third uh, congressional record, uh, which will be read on September the 21st on World Alzheimer's Day. Uh, and I'm hoping to get the attention of politicians uh, to do more for dementia. I, I think we are at a tipping point today. They're finally starting to hear us. And uh, hopefully we will be able to get the money and the funds that are necessary for this disease. Because to be honest with you, it's been discrimination up until now. Uh, they really haven't been funding this disease. You look at HIV, you look at uh, uh, cancer and the funds that they get, and we get bupkis, so minimal bupkis. amount of money. <laughs> Yeah. Now, is there one umbrella organization for your style, your advocacy? Is there an, uh, a one umbrella or there's not yet? Or it's just you personally with the 6,000 connections on LinkedIn? Well, I, am, I actually know every single CEO around the world in this particular arena. The one person that I have the highest respect for is us against Alzheimer's. Uh, I believe they are doing some wonderful things, but at the same time, they all have their own little niche. Yeah. The Alzheimer's Association also does some very good things. They also do some very terrible things. <laughs> so you, you're like me, you wanna get everyone to play nicely in the sandbox. Exactly. And that's, that is what's getting me about neurodiversity in general. It's not only that all the different neurodiversities are not talking to each other. It's that within each one, you got what you just described in the Alzheimer's dementia. You got this island over here and this island over here and this one's doing that good and this one's doing that good and this one doesn't like that one. And it's the same thing in the autism community where the vaccine people don't want to talk to the genetics people, don't want to talk to the gut brain people. But what I'm finding is, precisely because of my ignorance, okay, and I have a fresh set of eyeballs for this, is that, wait a minute, some of the research over here for autism on the gut brain also works for people with dementia, okay? Now, we've got to get them talking to each other because the importance of proper diet, nutrition, activity, and exercise has shown, been shown again in study after study to help all of the above, and especially uh, dementia and Alzheimer's, I might add parenthetically. Now, let me just segue that into what has your experience been with physical exercise and diet related to the process in you, in your brain? Well, I have to tell you, I, I, I don't like when people say that exercise and all this helps people with dementia because I believe exercise and all helps everybody. It's not true. just not just people well, specifically. Let me with let me interrupt you. That's the other amazing thing I found. In writing the Asper Tools book, I had my friend Dr. Lori Butts, who's president of Florida Psychological Association, and I have her on film saying in slightly different words than these, but I told Hackey he was a moron because he thought he was just writing these principles and tools for people with Asperger's or autism. And it's not, it's for everybody. It's about relationships, it's about parenting. And so isn't that a genius thing to say, 
oh, it's good for you to have proper diet, nutrition, and activity if he has Alzheimer's. And Michael Ellenbogen says, yeah, hacky, it's good for everybody. Why do you think that's a revelation? Because people don't do it. They'd rather take a magic pill than to do the common sense tools that you know so much about. Well, I have to tell you, for me, I'm, a thin, I'm actually fatter now than I was. Not that I'm fat, but I, I used to walk 11 flights of stairs every single day at my job. I mean, I didn't take the elevator. So, so you had OCD also. No, I don't think so. But I mean, I, I was always thin. I, I was always very active and I always ate well. So I, I, I don't think that was one of my reasons for getting dementia uh, or Alzheimer's. Uh, but a, again, I, I'm sure some people may be affected by that. Uh, but for me, it, that definitely didn't play a role. I mean, I still today, uh, I use an elliptical machine. Uh, I, I do that a couple of times a week. So I, I do try to to stay active, even though I'm sitting at home most of the time uh, looking at my computer. Uh, so I do try to do something to keep me active. Uh, I, I don't think that is the solution, though, that will help in any way to slow it down the process for me. Uh, I, I think we need to get some kind of cure or at least some way to slow it down in the meantime. I mean, I try many different things that most people don't use. I don't know if they're working or not, uh, but you know, you, you have to try something. Can you tell our audience here at Different Brains, what tools have you found that do make a difference that you, Michael Ellenbogen, and say, look, even though I haven't read about this in any literature, I'll tell you some good tools that someone who's getting dementia can use that are at least helpful in some way. Well, I have to tell you, for me, one of the best tools out there is a GPS. I mean, I don't even know how somebody with Alzheimer's would have survived a couple of years ago before GPS. I mean, I, I, I used to be a person that can go from point A to B without a map. I, it was all, I just had this great sense of direction. Today, I have trouble getting to my own mother-in-law's house. But with GPS, I can go anywhere. I can go to Florida from here. I mean, it's fabulous. And it's something that is so overlooked. And that's GPS driving. Well, some people who have dementia, they're afraid that they can't go anywhere anymore because they're going to get lost. Well, they make tools today that you can wear a GPS watch and they can track you wherever you're going or for that matter, your iPhone that you have. So th there's such great things out there today that people don't realize that can help us to continue. I mean, nobody should be fearful that they can't continue to still live life to the fullest because they have to be stuck in their house. There's tools out there to help us. And I think people need to realize that. You know, to me, I, I, I use my outlook on my computer. It's my brains. It keeps track of every appointment that I have. Without it, I wouldn't be able to have this meeting with you today. And it's like such a wonderful thing to be able to keep me on track every day that's, that reminds me all the little tasks that I need to do each day. Uh, well, so, you know, that's great because I do that too. And again, you're describing things that can work for all of us, but which are essential. Now, if, I, if I'm getting dementia... And if I'm getting Alzheimer's, where can I read about all these tools that you know about that I might not know about? Maybe Sat we should write an Asper Tools for Alzheimer's. Just write down a bunch of tools. 
Sadly to say, there are, I don't think there's anybody out there who has put anything in place that I'm aware of so far. But I did put in this document that I told you about, uh, I actually have a good, I think something like 30, 40 different ideas on how it helped me of different tools that I came up with along the ways that has helped me in my life to perform better on a daily basis. Uh, and again, I'm willing to share that with anybody who reaches out to me for free. Uh, I, I think we all create different ways to get by on a daily basis. I think anybody who has some form of Alzheimer's dementia creates their own mechanisms to survive. And well, I think it's I would I would dispute that. that with you because, in other words, they have to have the necessary pathways to come up with that. In other words. It's varying degrees. I'm sure it's like a bell-shaped curve. You know what I mean? And it would be much, it'll be very helpful if we can get the word out uh, to, I'm going to, I'm going to really take a look at that 50 page document and see what's in there. Cause it's very helpful. You see, one of the things I notice that happens is that when people such as yourself who pay the dues, who become expert, and know all this stuff like the back of their hand, they forget that everybody else, like me, is just kind of ignorant. Doesn't mean we're stupid, it just means we don't know about this stuff, you know? And it's perfectly logical to you the way it evolved. And I mean this in a very positive way, that you're a wealth of information and inspiration and knowledge, and uh, look at all the positive things you're doing. So anything we can do here at Different Brains to help get your word out and, and get it out there, we'll be very glad to do. Now, do you have your own website? I do. It's uh, MichaelEllenbogenMovement.com. Say it again slower. MichaelEllenbogenMovement.com. Okay, so you're saying this is a movement. Well, somebody somebody create the website for me, and that's what they thought at the time. So that's how they that's they, good. they no, named no, it. No, no, it is. How would you rate yourself the progression of the um, dementia or Alzheimer's with you, or do you feel you're getting quote better and better, or how do you measure it? Okay, in other words, how do you feel that you're doing? With, and how are the doctors, if possible, measuring it? Well, for me, I'm in medical trials. So I'm constantly being tested by the trial. Uh, every, I'd say, two to three months, I'm doing some kind of neuropsychological testing uh, to see where I'm at in reference to my baseline. Every time I do these tests, I see that I've declined a little bit. And it's frustrating on the one hand because you, you, you kind of see that you're no longer capable of doing things that you were able to do the last time you were there. Like, for example, I used to be into drafting and I could easily uh, draw anything. Well, in the last couple of times, I no longer can do a three dimensional square, which is one of the tests that they give you. Uh, and you got to remember. I I did drafting. So for me, that should be something very simple. I should be able to do that with my eyes closed. Uh, and to see that I'm no longer capable of doing things like that, it's it's aggravating. Uh, but it's things that they learn from 
me being in a clinical trial. And, you know, I, I have to say, I'm one of the lucky ones with this disease because my progression is very slow in compared to the other people that I know who have Alzheimer's. And it could be because of all the different things that I'm doing that's delayed some of that. I don't know. I mean, we will never know why it's, you know, it, it's been this. I mean, you know, just having dialogue with people such as yourself and high level people all the time, that keeps me at the top of my game. And it's always trying to keep me more engaged and involved where a lot of people, unfortunately, because they get this diagnosis, they kind of shut themselves away withdraw, from society. Withdraw instead yes. of accelerating the other way. Yes. And, and that leads to a decline. There's no doubt in my mind. They decline so much quicker because of that. Uh, yeah, and that's also been shown study after study. Isolation is not a good thing. In the brain, you got to exercise it. Um, do you have any experience or thoughts about that company, Lumosity, that I hear advertised? I'm, I don't know anything about them with the brain games to try to help your brain. Well, I have to tell you, uh, I believe if you're a person who's locked away and you do nothing whatsoever, I'm sure that probably does help a little bit because it's engaging them and it's doing something for them. Personally, for somebody like me, I don't think it would make a difference because I'm already kept engaged. And I think part of the problem with those things, when they're dealing with those people day in and day out, trying to understand how they're doing in those games, that interaction with them is helping those people. And that's why those people are showing better results. I don't think it's the actual games. I think it's that interaction that they have with those people that's having them improve. So I have a different theory on that. But then again, I'm, the, I'm a nobody. I'm not a person who understands all that. Yeah, but you're on nobody. So <laughs> that makes you somebody. Um, Michael, that's very interesting. You know, it's, it's a, you see, you're looking at things with intellectual honesty as you look at all of them. Now, where do you think somebody like me, who is not nearly as uh, knowledgeable as you in the area of Alzheimer's and dementia, where do you think someone like me is missing the big picture? To say, well, look, Hacky, you know, I think you kind of have a picture of this neurodiversity and you're getting around it, but what you're missing is X. What would that X be? What would it be? Well, I, I think you're taking a right first step here by reaching out to people such as myself. And that's what I encourage other doctors to do. They need to get people like myself in a room and start asking the questions that they can't ask their patients. There's one thing I have learned is that doctors, even neurologists, they had this textbook idea of what a person with dementia is like. But they don't ask the questions to find out, is it really like that? And they're afraid to do that with their patients. So they need to get in a room with five or six people like myself and start asking questions. Because if they ask those questions, they will re-look at the books and change how those books are. Because I can assure you, people like myself can do so much more than what people tend to think we're capable of doing if we're given the chance and the opportunity to treat us like a person still. I mean, I, I went to Harvard and I spoke with the 
graduating class of neurologists there, and they asked me these questions, and they were shocked. They were shocked by the answers. I've spoken with people here in my local area. I was trying to educate doctors at hospitals here, and I was uh, asked these questions. They said, Mike, so what you're saying is I now need to treat the person as a person again rather than a patient. <laughs> what a I novel mean, idea. <laughs> this came from a doctor's mouth who was a neurologist. And I was like shocked that it took having dialogue with me on questions and answers that they finally came to that conclusion. So I, I tell you, there, there's a lot that can be learned if they ask the right questions and they don't fear us and work with us. Very well said. It's very well said. Well, as an MD, I can tell you the training has to change in such a direction in general. And there's all kinds of pressures. I used to commute from here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, up to my alma mater, Boston University, for 36 years or so to give the first year anatomy lectures, the first kind of clinical lecture, which combined anatomy and clinicals, because I'm an orthopedic surgeon. So it'd be clinical aspects of anatomy. And upper extremity anatomy was the one. And um, one day I got this beautiful letter from the, uh, the head of the anatomy department, Mark Moss, who's a great guy, a neuroscientist and uh, heads the department. And I called him up after I read this beautiful letter thanking me for everything I've done for so many years. And I said, Mark, I didn't realize till the end of the letter I had been fired. I said, do you know how hard it is to get fired when you're not getting paid? It's not easy. But I did it. But it's interesting, the way the, um, all of the uh, syllabi or the, you know, the way they have to teach is changing is similar to the way doctors have to practice now. Now you go to a doctor, they have to be glued to their iPad, they have to be typing, instead of sitting and talking to you and making eye contact like we're doing right now via the internet, be it. And um, um, it's the same way there because I would tell them things like listen to your patient, treat every patient like it's your own family, and those kinds of comments and thoughts don't increase your scores on the boards where you can get more grants for the school. So when they're always compressing these courses, they're cutting out what you're talking about. Hey, here's a novel idea. Treat the patient like a, a human being, like someone in your own family. And that's the litmus test. How would I take care of Michael Ellenbogen if I'm a neurologist and he's in my own family, what would I do? Where are the ends of the earth I would go to to find these different things? Instead of, you know, there's the diagnosis and there it is. So I want to salute you on all you're doing to make a positive change. It doesn't mean that doctors are bad or the organizations are bad or anything like that. It just means... We want to look a little bit more through Michael Ellenbogen's prism to look at dementia and Alzheimer's in a more positive, proactive, tool-based way. That's what I'm getting out of this. No, and you're right. Uh, I have to tell you, though, you, 
the, the way the medical system is today, it is getting worse just because of what you said. You know, we're, we're, we're so locked into looking at that computer while we're talking to the patient that they're really going to miss some serious things, especially with people with dementia. Uh, that, that, that's going to be a real problem I, I see going forward. Uh, but I, I also believe that we're getting better at diagnosing things with some of the tools that are coming out today. Uh, I mean, just with the amyloid PET scans that exist today, unfortunately, they're not affordable for most people today, and insurance doesn't cover those kind of things. But uh, the tools that they're coming out with, I think, are going to help us. In fact, I think just the other day they came out with a, the first blood test that is 100 uh, percent accuracy that people uh, will be able to be diagnosed that they have Alzheimer's. So I think we're getting there. I, I think the tools are finally starting to come there. And I hope that that blood test will be available to people in the next com- couple of years. What would you say is the the bell-shaped curve or whatever the breakdown is to um, the different severity? Like if we had a, if, if the whole pie graph is dementia and Alzheimer's, what percentage are like you at one end, which appear to be the elite, if I would say that, versus the other end that need 24-7 um, care and supervision, if that's a correct thing to even ask. I, I don't know. Well, I, I think the problem is I will be there at one point in time. I just happen to be in the early stages at this point. So I think we're all going to go through that process. Uh, I, I just happen to be able to hang on a lot longer than the average person who is uh, living with this disease. Uh, And again, it could be because of all the different things that I'm doing, like talking to you and the drugs that I take. I mean, I take a lot of different drugs. Uh, I mean, I take things like coconut oil, reversitrol, turmeric. These are all things that have been known to possibly be able to help. So are they all in your 50 page document? Well, I don't think that's in there. I don't I. I didn't talk about those kind of things because I'm a scientific person myself. I like to know the proof. And there's no way of proving those things work at this point in time. What is your uh, educational background, Michael? I have an associate's degree in electronic technology, and I have a lot of little degrees that I've gotten over the years uh, in reference to my particular field in telecommunications. I think you might be have a few Aspie traits also. Well, I don't know about that. I mean, I, I can tell you, I was the type of perfect, a person who was a perfectionist in everything I did. Uh, and uh, that has helped me in my life to accomplish things that most people were never able to accomplish. Well, that's great. Now, let's just summarize for our audience where they can find you on the web and your book and anything else you would like to say. Give me a commercial here for... Michael Ellen Bogan. Well, it's definitely been a pleasure to be here, Hacky. I, that I can tell you. Uh, I, I thank you for bringing uh, awareness to this particular cause, which is uh, so critical out there. Uh, but as far as people are reaching out to me, they can reach out to me through my website, michaelellenbogenmovement.com. And uh, I'm more than happy to, to uh, speak to anybody on this particular issue. Uh, I'm always uh, looking to... Uh, make new friends and to make awareness for this cause, which is uh, so drastically needed. And I'm always looking to get engage more and new people to this 
arena, especially those who are living with this disease, because it's their voice that's most important and critical to changing the, I guess, view of what people think uh, people with dementia are like. Uh, you know, the sad part is, unlike any other disease, there aren't survivors for this particular cause. So we have to take our opportunity while we're still capable of speaking to bring this awareness. Very well said. I certainly appreciate that you're using your brain and your being to uh, make a positive difference to help others and to straighten out a few things. So keep up the good work and let us know anything we can do to be of help here at differentbrains.com. Well, thank you so much for having me today. We've been very lucky to have with us today Michael Ellen Bogan, the author of From the Corner Office to Alzheimer's, MichaelEllenBoganMovement.com. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.